1: In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence.
0: Hey there, and welcome to episode 133 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode Elite Athlete to Top Executive. An interview with Luke Robitaille. A few weeks ago, we ran our first ever interview on the No Bullshit Leadership podcast with Arnett's Chief Customer Officer, Michelle Foley. Em and I were absolutely overwhelmed with all the positive feedback from Michelle's interview. So on the back of that, we've decided that interviews should form part of our content lineup going forward. In effect, after 130-odd episodes of me giving my two cents worth on All Things Leadership, In the future, we'll hear more regularly from other leaders who've made a real mark on the world in one way or another. Today, we're bringing you an interview with Luke Robitaille, the president of the Los Angeles Kings National Hockey League franchise. After a 20-year career as an elite athlete in one of the toughest sporting arenas on the planet, Luke made a successful transition to corporate executive ranks. We hear a lot of talk in business about the concept of world-class performance. and you're just about to get some insight into what that really means. It's a great interview that needs no further introduction. So let's get into it. Luke Rovertide, thank you so much for joining us, mate. Now, I just want to give you a really brief introduction up front. Uh, I could talk all day about your stellar careers, um, but ice hockey doesn't have a huge following in Australia. uh, But in Canada, where you originate from, ice hockey is like religion. It's like, uh, you know, uh, rugby in New Zealand and cricket in India. It's just massive. Uh, Luke. You're one of the greatest ice hockey players of all time. Um, I don't have nearly enough time to go through the accolades you earned during your playing career, but the short story is uh, you had a 20-year career. 2007, your number 20 was retired by the LA Kings. Um, 2009, inducted into the NHL Hockey Hall of Fame uh, in Toronto, which I got to visit that year, funnily enough. Uh, And in 2017, named as one of the top 100 players of all time in the NHL. Now, most interesting and uh, somewhere where we're going to be uh, focusing a little bit on in this interview is that you went from a a career as an elite athlete to become president of the LA Kings and, of course, have a very, very successful career as a senior executive. And so for me, um, it's uh, just fantastic to be able to talk to you and get some of your experience in that transition. Mm -hmm. So, Luke, welcome and thank you so much for all your time. Thank you. It's great to see, it's great to be with
2: you. I'm a big fan, so.
0: Cheers. <laughs> so, so let's let's start off with with going back into history. When when you were drafted into the NHL in 1984, uh, you were picked up by the LA Kings in the ninth round as the 171st overall pick. So that's got a ring of Tom Brady to it, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yet in your first season, you won the award as the top rookie in the NHL, and then you retired 20 years later as the highest scoring left winger in the history of the league. So what was it that set you apart as a player and fueled that journey from being, you know, a young kid with big dreams to becoming an icon and leaving such an indelible mark on the sport? Yeah,
2: I, you know, I think back, you know, you don't think about it while you're playing, but I got to reflect on it over the years. And I think the difference between me and most kids that were drafted, late and so forth is uh, I was so happy that my name was on the list and i'll never forget thinking okay my name's on the list now it's up to me and because you know like i, I kind of knew it like it was up to me and i was highly highly competitive and uh, you know the that whole that uh, what's that name of that book the outlier oh yeah yeah the 10,000 hours i kind of did a double you know over <laughs> all my, when i was 16 and all my friends would say let you know drinking in in montreal I was 18 and they never ask for an idea or anything. So all my friends would go out in the summer, and I would say, "I'm going to stay tonight and go skate or go practice," not knowing. Like I just love doing it. and I want to get better. I, I didn't know if I could. I had a chance to turn pro or something. But years later, you know, all my friends look at me and they go, "Man, I wish I would have gone and skate with you." You know, because everyone in Canada wanted to play pro. And that's- looking back, I think that's that was the difference between me and everyone else
0: yeah well for sure and uh you know you put the work in right but isn't it interesting you used to go out and skate but your critics used to say robert can't skate right yeah when you you first came in the league so what was that all about
2: they actually said that was slower you know everybody has seen a Zamboni in hockey they there was one scout actually wrote one time that i was slower than a zamboni which is really slow (laughs) but but you, you know what i i I had this attitude in my mind as a kid or as I grew and you start getting a bit notoriety was, if someone said something right about me, my, my thinking was, I'm going to prove that they're right. And if they said something negative about me, my goal was to prove them wrong. Right. I never really took anything in a negative way or took anything for granted. I just went with it. So when they said I couldn't skate, I do remember asking my dad, is it true to him? That? So he goes, well, all I know, son... It, when there's a loose puck somewhere, you seem to be there first. So keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, ab- absolutely, yeah. yeah. We yeah. did work at it every day.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's good to get that perspective. And 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 obviously, you know, focusing on the results that come through, uh, you know, you can't have the sorts of seasons of um, goal-scoring records that you got if you couldn't skate, right? So obviously. But yeah. um, that w- one of the other things that amazes me is you had incredible longevity as a player, and you see this occasionally with guys like Jaeger and uh, – you know, Mark Recchi, and then, you know, in football, Tom Brady and these guys. Uh, But, you know, hockey is a brutal sport, and it is so demanding both physically and mentally. And the speed and the skill and the toughness that are required to play at that highest level in the NHL is just beyond what most people can imagine. So what was it that made you keep coming back year after year after year when those demands on you would have been so great?
2: I, I think for me, I mean, the first thing, it was never a job. It, it was hard. It was hard work, but it was never a job. It was really a passion. And and I I think I read somewhere one time about Bill Gates. He, he defines success. He goes, I was scared of failure every day, you know. And I remember hearing, I'm like, oh, I was scared to lose my job every day. <laughs> so I'm trying to get better every day. I remember being 37 years old and doing power skating lessons. I was 37 years old. Most guys had retired five years earlier, and I was still trying to get better at 37, 38. And now, looking back, I'm like, that's probably what kept me in the league. That's probably what kept me doing what I wanted to do, my dream. And you know, I read a book about Tom Brady, and it's the same thing. He seems to want to improve every year and get better. And it means you never take anything for granted
0: yeah absolutely absolutely so so what was it that finally made you decide that you didn't have one more season in you
2: there was a player that was playing with me he was born the day i was drafted i'm like i think i'm near the end now (laughs) (laughs) i'm like he was born the day that i got drafted i think this is going to be near the end no but Towards the end, you know, like I I never thought about it, but my last five, six years, my back was pretty bad, and I would get to the rink like two, three hours earlier than everyone else and just trying to get ready for every game. And I I describe it where you squeeze a lemon and there was no drop left. Like The one thing that I love is once I retired, I had absolutely no regret. I wasn't good every day, but I tried to be as good as I could be every day. So by that time, it was... I was good with it. I just walked away and I was totally fulfilled. No, like I knew what I was going to miss, which we always talk about missing the locker room environment and all that. And i um, but I was prepared for it because I knew it was real time. You know?
0: Yeah. They, they still let you down in the locker room as the president, don't they?
2: Yeah. But they don't make the jokes that we used to make when I was there. <laughs> I come in, they all stopped talking.
0: <laughs> well, you had a reputation for always being smiling and always having fun. And uh, was that genuinely what it was like all the time for you playing in the team?
2: It, you know, it was fun for me. I enjoyed it, but I think internally I was putting a lot of, I was always trying to pressure. Like, it, it's kind of funny because there was like a, a kind of a small documentary do, done towards the end of my, my career. And my wife saw me in the locker room laughing on the ice, laughing everywhere, laughing. And she says, I thought you didn't really like to play hockey. I said, why? She said, because after every game, you were always like criticizing yourself and, and uh-huh. so hard. And, and I'm like, well, you're the only one I could share that with. So I said, so she goes, so I I, I took all the brunt. I got all the bad stuff. I go, what well, kind of? And I'm really sorry. But my idea is like, even though I was happy to be within the confinement, in my mind, though, when I walked away, I was really hard on myself trying to get better every day, you know? So she didn't see it. Poor her. She only saw the bad part, <laughs> except when she saw me. <laughs> but that,
0: that drive, that absolute drive to be your best that seems to be very common in elite athletes who are at the top of their game, and yeah. I'd imagine you've taken that through to your executive career as president.
2: Yes, yes. I, it, there's one thing I believe you can't really teach. Whether you're playing a sport or you're running a business or you have people, is passion. You know, like I, so. So for me, coming in and, and and retiring and then starting running a business on the Kings, I think I brought my passion for the organization. And then from yeah. then on, we started structuring everything. But behind it, everybody that was working behind you with me, they were like, "Oh my god!" Like we, we, you know, we got to go. And then we didn't accept no. We didn't take no for an answer on anything we were doing.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's a really important thing: is to don't take no for an answer. Keep going, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and look, you played with some incredible teammates over the years, uh, not least of whom was the great Wayne Gretzky, who's yeah. you know obviously widely regarded as the greatest hockey player of all time. Um, yeah. Gretzky turned up at the Kings relatively early in your career. What impact did it have on you to be able to observe and learn from Gretzky and the other greats like Marcel Dion? And how much did that contribute to your success as a player?
2: Uh, I mean, it was tremendous. Like growing up, being 12, 13 years old, Wayne Gretzky was my idol. So to have the opportunity to play with him, you know, even the first couple of years when I was against him, every game that I played against Gretzky, I wanted to show him that. I was good, you know. I remember having a certain motivation, but when he came on my team, he—I I idolized him so much that it was almost difficult for me the first couple of years because I didn't, I didn't almost expect to see flaws in him. So it's really hard sometimes to meet your idol because when when you have an idol, you don't really think of their flaws. You don't really see them as human being. So for me to play with Wayne, poor guy, like he's just he just wanted to be a teammate, but I literally idolized him so. Like I can give you an example. I remember one time he says, hey, uh, I, I try to make him a perfect pass. And he says to me, he says, hey, my nickname was Lucky. He goes, Lucky. He goes, next time, just give it to me right away. He goes, you know, I'll give it back to you. Like, And he was right, you know. But then after that, I was so nervous. Every time I got the puck, I just wanted to give it to him. Like, you know, remember, literally the coach says to me, he goes, maybe you shouldn't play with him for a few games because you're trying to please him too much, you know. Right. But, I did feel like that at first. It was that influence on me. But he right. was trying to to see every day how he worked on details of becoming a, a better athlete and the way he approached the game. Ultra competitive guy, and then the bigger the moment, he seemed to find a way to be even greater, which was amazing to me to watch.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. That's it's beyond the reach of most people to even conceptualize how to do that. So, yeah. um, so, so to have actually lived that obviously, you know, the expansion in your mind about what's possible must have been enormous. Yeah, um, and, and look, we all face difficulties when we transition to an unfamiliar role. Um, as you know, I dedicate a lot of my work in leadership to transitioning from one role to another and going to different levels. But, you know, even though you knew the industry of professional ice hockey really well and you dealt with the front office throughout your career, I still imagine it was a tricky adjustment to make. So what did you find was the toughest part of the transition from a lead athlete to top executive?
2: I think the toughest part when I started is like when you're an athlete and you have a bad game, you you, you might be upset at night. You're talking to your wife or your friends or your parents. The next thing you wake up, you go to practice, and you're getting ready for the next game. And in hockey, it's every two days, so it's nonstop. Yeah. If you have a bad day in the office or you make a mistake, it could take six months. It could take a year to fix it. So I think the biggest thing was patience. You know, to realize that okay, if we're doing something wrong here, it's the repercussions could be six months. You know, it's not just tomorrow we're gonna have a new practice and we'll win the next game, I get a couple goals and we're all good. So from that standpoint, probably was the biggest thing. Let's learn to be a little bit more patient into every decision in the direction we were gonna go. And strategically, I understood like uh, how it had to work as a team, but that part was really important.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't it amazing the impact of some decisions, how long lasting they can be when you're at a very senior level? So it's incredible. Right. No, <laughs> too, too, too much. Um, now, look, one thing that was really interesting for me, I saw the um, Netflix documentary earlier this year on uh, The Last Dance, You know, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Did you get a chance to see that?
2: Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we've all watched it and we're making our players watch it.
0: Right. Yeah, it's outstanding, right? Um, now, the one thing sort of interested me, apart from that drive for high performance and excellence, It looked like there were times where it wasn't fun. You know, it wasn't fun. So what qualities and attributes do you develop as a player to be a successful attribute when you leave that um, environment of high performance, we have fun, we're pushing ahead, and then all of a sudden I'm away from that day-to-day excitement and I've got to run an organisation?
2: Well, it's... uh... It's not always fun every day, but you still enjoy what you're doing. I, I like you know watching watching the tape you know with, with, with Jordan and, and to see how they ran their their organization and, and the work ethic. they really push each other. I mean in sport, the funny thing is it's really only fun when you win it all. you know it's kind of maybe yeah. something doesn't go against everything that's really important about life. But it is, at the end of the day, there's only one team that wins every year, and that's the goal that everyone's trying to do. So, uh, you know, you're never totally fulfilled until you win it all if you really have passion to what you're doing, you know? So as much as Michael Jordan was hard on his teammates, the reason was he wanted to win it all every single year because he believed it could, and and they didn't, so he wasn't happy when they didn't. But the, the best thing that he did is he would turn around and himself, he would put it upon himself. He was the one that worked the hardest. So it made it really good. It made it really easy for the organization as a whole to kind of get together and say, man, if our best player worked the hardest, we better we better do it. It's the same in, a, in our league right now that the top player is Sidney Crosby. You know, he's one known. Yeah. Sid the kid, yep. He's got the same attitude. He's always the hardest worker on his team. So it makes the whole team kind of follow what he's doing
0: Right, so who was that player for you throughout your career that you saw someone like that who was the one that everyone sort of gravitated around and really pushed everyone else to excel?
2: Well, you know, there there was different players. Obviously, playing with Wayne when I was in L.A. was truly incredible, and he wanted more every day, to get better every day. We had another player, Captain Dave Taylor, that always did everything right, so it was a great mentor to follow. I did play with a player named Mark Messier, Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah. And he's known in our game as one of the greatest leaders. Yeah. i learned earned a tremendous amount of knowledge with him as being a leader because we all think, you know, we've all seen movies. We think a leader is going to be the guy that's screaming and gets mad and steps on it. And I played with Mark Misty for two years. He never got mad at anyone. He just made everybody feel part of a special group, your family. If you weren't willing to work like that, he kind of just – paid attention to all the guys that were working, and suddenly oh. we almost this individual that naturally seemed to just steer away from the team. And you kind of just knew, okay, this is the team. I better be in that group. I don't want to be with this guy. And next thing you know, that guy would, you know, no one would talk to me. He would just get traded. He didn't fit on our team, so the GM had to trade him. It was really incredible how great of a leader he was at making you feel part of a big family. And he put all the pressure on himself, too,
0: yeah, that, and that is that is an awesome story, Luke. Because um, I talk about spending, you know, eighty percent of your time with your best people, not the other way around. Yeah, so what you're saying about Marc Messier is that he did genuinely spend the right amount of time with the top people, and the other that's ones true. just sort of drifted away. That's an awesome lesson, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that's really That's really what he did. And then, but you the, put the pressure on. So I'll give you an example. One time we were in a game, and I was still pretty young on that team, and you know, I was known as a goal scorer, obviously. And I remember. You know, he had never say anything the first year. One game, we were down 2-1. And he's between the second and third period. And he just kind of in the room. He's like a couple of, all right, boys, we got to get this one. We got to win today. He goes, I'll tell you what. He said, I got one, I, meaning I got a goal. He goes, <laughs> he, he leans and he goes, Lucky, you got the next one? And I've never felt that much pressure in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but. But you kind of just knew as an athlete and a leader, he meant it. He was going to get one, but he's like asking me if I got the game one or the game tire. And I was like, yeah, and I was so – I I did get a goal. So I was so happy that I made him. <laughs> It even came on the team. I was so happy that I made him happy. But, but it was like – it was amazing the way he handled that. It was great. Yeah.
0: It's incredible. Let's – that's the leading from the front thing, right? Which is interesting. So he's, he still right. did his job as the captain, right? Fantastic. Yeah. So so you've tasted the pinnacle of the sport, right? The Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, three occasions. Once as a player with uh, the Red Wings and yep. twice as an executive of the Kings, right? So which one was your most satisfying and why?
2: Well, they're all satisfying because it's so special. But definitely winning as a player, because I was a little kid and I wanted to win as a player, that was that was the ultimate plan for me. And it took me 16 years to get there. There were a few times where we got to the semifinal finals, and I really thought we'd be back the next year. Then you don't realize how hard it is until you get later in your career. So and to winning, and and the reason why it was so important for me to win as a player is because then it made me understand what it takes to really be successful. Yeah, because I was a successful athlete. I had a lot of accolades for 16 years. I was leading the league in scoring and, and my position. Different, but I never knew that to really win, To that, the, the one difference between being the finalist and a champion is, is understanding that it really does take everyone. Like in hockey, we have four lines of forward. Obviously, the superstars yeah. play on the top two lines and then so forth. But you can't win the Stanley Cup unless the fourth line does its job.
0: Yeah, Absolutely.
2: You might have two guys that sat out. Let's say you wouldn't stand up in 25 games. You might have two, three guys that sat out for 23 games, and then suddenly out of nowhere, you have a couple injury. They come in. That one game, they do that one play that helps save the goal. When we win, we all realize and know how important that play was. So we we within that small group of 25 guys, we're, we're hugging each other, and you, you, you really understand what it takes. So for me after that, to be able to take that in the business and understand that it takes everyone to be successful was great. And then the, the one thing uh, about winning when I was running the business is when I won as a player, it's really the 25 players and your coach and your trainers that you you inside that bubble where you, you go to war, per se. When you win it and you, and you run the business, you understand that it it, it it involves like thousands of people. Yeah. People have had season seats for 50 years. They've never seen you win how much it impacts them. So, so I got to appreciate both sides, and I'm very grateful because of that.
0: Yeah, well that that's awesome, isn't it? And, look, you've obviously built a great organisation in a, in L.A., and although you're currently in a rebuilding period, I imagine that having Dean Lombardi in there for many years as GM and now Rob Blake must have brought some real stability with you know having those high-trust relationships. But you've also been through six or seven head coaches during the same time. So is it difficult to keep continuity of purpose when – personnel, and the head coach change relatively frequently.
2: Yeah, it's hard to, if you change a coach uh, quite often. It's it's not an, an easy formula. I mean, for us, uh, since, uh, since Rob Lake took over in 2017, as an organization, we started with a coach, and then at some point, unfortunately, it didn't work a year and a half into it. it. But it had a lot to do with our roster was getting older and so forth. And then we were in the middle of the season, and at the time, we just wanted to see if we, our guys could, could have a jolt. And we didn't know, we didn't have the right coach available. So it looks like there's a big number of coaches, but we strategically hired a gentleman that we were hoping just to finish the year. And we were hoping our players would turn around and they never did. So they showed us the cards that we needed to change the team, not just the coaches. So, so Strategically, we, we hired a coach for like five or six months, and then we knew we were going to start from scratch the next summer. We have since then. And then this coach, we made a commitment to him for five years. So he will be with us for a while. And, and uh, yeah, good. We, we understand that the coaching is really important just for communication and doing it the right way.
0: Yeah, a- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's it's good that you're stabilizing now, and we're looking forward to some really big things from the Kings in coming years, which is awesome. Um, one thing to finish off on: Wayne Gretzky said that no individual has done more for the game of hockey in a, in LA than you have.
2: So <laughs>
0: why is it so important for you to give back to the community, and how much role did that play in inspiring you both as a player and an executive?
2: You know, I think I never took for granted that. The lifestyle and everything. I appreciated uh, what I what I had, and and I I think it was always important to give back. I do recall when I was I think I was seventeen or eighteen years old. There was uh, an uncle that took me to dinner, and uh, that's you know in Canada when you're eighteen you're scoring goals at junior level already everybody knows you, and and the owner of the restaurant came came out to say hello to me. But my uncle specifically said to me, he said, look, this is going to happen for the rest of your life. But he said, what's more important, go in the kitchen and say hello to everybody that works in the kitchen and the guy that works behind the bar and the guy that gives you water. He says, these people will never forget. The owner might, but these people. So for some reason, I never forgot that lesson that it was important to treat everyone the same. You know, we're all human beings. Some of us have a certain gift, but that's it. You know, we're all the same. So I never forgot that. So when I when I turned in L- I, 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 pro in L.A., I just knew whenever they would ask me to do something for the community, whether it was Children's Hospital, I thought it was important. And then when I started running the business, we made sure that our players understand what it means to get to live your dream. And they do. They live their dream. They're very, very fortunate. And so it, one of the questions I always or try to ask them, say, look, before you turn pro, if I'd ask you, will you sign a million hockey cards for little kids? You'd probably say, yeah, to turn pro, yeah, I'll do that. said, well, then don't forget it when you're five years in the league and and some some kid asks you for an autograph post-game and you're tired. Don't forget that feeling that you would have signed a million five years ago.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And you just put into my head how many copies of my book I'm going to have to sign (laughs) in the next few years. Don't forget that. Sign them. (laughs) (laughs) That is is a fantastic lesson, Luke. And one of my – it's a good one to finish off on, actually, because one of my favorite quotes is you can tell the character of a person – by how they treat other people that they don't need to treat well
2: that's and right.
0: that and that's really how you tell what a person's character is like so mate and you have such a wonderful uh, aspect on life uh, you're a champion and I'm so proud of what you've done over the years just watching from the sidelines uh, and so grateful that you've been able to share this with our audience so thank you so much for coming on Luke Robitaille I really appreciate it
2: anytime it's, it's great to see you and I'm glad I'm on your team
0: <laughs> thanks Luke cheers buddy
2: all right thanks okay bye-bye
0: All right, so that brings us to the end of episode 133. I really hope you enjoyed those insights from Luke and that they help you to get a better understanding of what it takes to produce truly world-class performance. His lessons on work ethic, individual accountability, teamwork, and most interestingly, gratitude, are incredibly important ingredients of success, no matter what industry or what company you happen to be in now. I really hope you can incorporate some of those into your own leadership repertoire. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please share this episode now with your network of leaders. I'm really looking forward to next week's episode, being more strategic, uh, whatever the hell that means. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader.